This is Alice's Restaurant, 90.4 megahertz, and we're here to bring you the very best in rock music. You're in tune with Lou the Duke here on Radio City. If you want to write... Anyway, welcome to MAR on 266 meters medium wave, the sound of the northwest. It's a Thameside radio on 90.2 megahertz VHF. Welcome back to the Pirates of the Airways podcast. This episode is number 25. I know, I can't believe it either. Remember, all the previous 24 are still available to listen to from your preferred podcast platform or from 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. Just click on the image. In this new episode, I'm talking to Arnold Levine from the 1970s station Radio Concord. We chat about how Concord started and how it went on to be the radical voice of the 1970s counterculture in London. We also talk about his excellent book, Banned by the BBC, and finally what he's been doing since the end of Radio Concord. So, sit back and enjoy. So, welcome to the podcast. Um, This episode... I say this almost every week. I say, we've got a pirate radio legend. Uh, but this this gentleman has written a, an incredible book, which we'll talk about a bit later on, all about his time in pirate radio. So um, a very, well, it's good morning to us. <laughs> a very good morning to Arnold Levine. And a very good morning to you, Mark, and all the listeners. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Okay. Um, I'm going to start off with, with the question I always ask people, because I'm very intrigued Everybody always has a, an entry drug when it comes to uh, pirate radio. So, what are your? When did you first become aware of pirate radio as opposed to th- normal radio? Well, obviously, the very first was in what March nineteen sixty four when Radio Caroline started um, broadcasting on the boat. Okay, and um, um, how did you find out about it? You know, what were your initial reactions? Oh my goodness! It was uh, it was heaven. Um, you know, in, obviously in '64 it was just um, uh, the light program. You know, and it had a couple of hours of uh, you know modern music, uh, pop music uh, a day if we're lucky. And uh, suddenly, you know, we started hearing on the uh, newspapers and things that this new thing, you know, called uh, you know pirate radio was happening on a boat. And so, uh, obviously, me and my friends, I mean, uh, in just a short while, the whole country uh, just um, fell in love with it. And uh, everyone was listening to it rather than the BBC. So, so obviously, Radio Caroline is your first, like everybody, it's the entry drug. Once the other stations started opening, obviously, Atlanta and London and City and all the others, what was your go-to station? What was the one you were listening to on a regular basis? Oh, well, definitely London, um, definitely Radio London and Radio Caroline were the main ones. They, they came in pretty good uh, on my parents' um, old radio stereogram. Uh, <laughs> it was more of a fact of what came in best, you know. <laughs> Where, whereabouts were you living at the time? Oh, in north northwest London, uh, Parliament Hill Fields. Oh, so you're nice and high up as well. That's good. Yeah, it wasn't too bad. And uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, a revelation, actual music all the time. It, uh, it was mind blowing for me and my friends. Um, obviously, we'd never seen, well, apart from, uh, of course, Radio Luxembourg fading in and out uh, abysmally. Uh, you know, we used to listen to it under the uh, covers at night and uh, try and grab uh, pieces of songs as they faded. <laughs> In my, my early um, radio listening was when I lived in Yorkshire. I lived in Leeds at the time when I was very young. And um, Luxembourg came in a much, much better in the north than it did in the south, believe it or not. Uh, and we used to get a, a reasonable, I say reasonable, it, we'd put up with anything in those days to listen to music, I suppose. So it was a reasonable signal. But yes, and I do remember Radio radio 1 on 247 wasn't great at night either, especially where we lived, which, which is where my first radio listening was. Okay, so you've got the pirates. They all closed down, or except for obviously Caroline, all closed down in 1967. What's your next move? What What are you thinking at that point? Well, yeah, we were devastated, and we really didn't know what what to do. I mean, we just obviously they put in Radio One, so that gave us some more pop music, um, and um, 
Obviously, the uh, BBC Two came in with um, some good shows, uh, good music shows, you know, late at night and uh, on the TV. So it was really, uh, it almost faded into the background, you know, until uh, a fateful day in 1971 when I got a call from my uh, uh, good friend uh, Jeff Black and uh, told me to turn the radio on and uh, tune in to um, a, a specific channel. And what was that you were listening to? That was uh, Radio Odyssey was broadcasting and it was incredibly faint. I think it was coming from South London and, I, you know, I was in North London and uh, just about hear something. And he said, oh, it, it's a pirate radio station. And we it kind of, wow, you know, it just blew our minds that people were doing that. We hadn't even realized uh, it had picked up after the pirates had been uh, banned. And uh, so... We uh, you know, listened to it a bit, and uh, then we got together a couple of days later over at his place, and we said, wow, wouldn't it be great to have our own station? I think we all have those moments, don't we? We sit together with a load of friends and go, do you know what, let's start our own station. And that's certainly how it worked with me. Again, listening to something that I didn't quite know what it was. It was Radio Amy and North London Radio, in my case. And, oh, okay. uh, and, I, and a friend of mine said, oh, someone knows something about this. I went down and we all started chatting. And I know a bloke who can build transmitters and it all sort of develops from there. So you and you and Jeffrey are, are sitting there going, oh, let's start our own station. What's your next move? Where do you get a transmitter and, and how do you find out about how to do it? Right. Well, we uh, contacted Radio Odyssey. You know, they left um, a phone number, or I suppose an address, I think. And uh, we contacted them. That's right, it was an address and... Uh, and then a few weeks later, they contacted us back and um, they said, well, uh, after some probing questions to make sure we weren't um, anybody, uh, you know, trying to uh, do them in, um, uh, they said, well, come on down to a meeting. And uh, we went down uh, South London, I think it was in Kew somewhere. Uh, we went in a big old house and went into the, the back old dining room and there was about a, about a eight or nine um, nerdy-looking guys, young guys, <laughs> sitting around a room filled with odd bits of um, uh, e uh, equipment and radio valves and, you know, and all those sort of things. And uh, so they uh, conducted the meeting and, you know, then they asked us, who are you? And then what do you want to do with it? You know, so we uh, just said we love uh, a lot of, you know, eclectic music and uh, which never gets um, played on the radio. And so we just, um, they, uh, uh, the end of the meeting, uh, we spoke to one of the guys who was about 15 years old and he said, uh, can you build us a transmitter? <laughs> and uh, so about uh, two weeks later, we got a call and went down there. And I think it was, it cost us 15 pounds and there was a, a little slip of paper with a few instructions on and they showed us how to turn it on and modulate it and all that sort of stuff. And then we took it back on the uh, on the tube <laughs> back, back home, uh, all the wires and odd bits of uh, things hanging off of it. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, then I went to uh, Jeffrey's house and uh, I shimmed, I was the, um, the tree climber and so I shimmed up a, a a tree in the back of his garden and we uh, run the uh, wire, the silver coated uh, wire over to it and to his bedroom and uh, hooked it up and put a radio on onto that, onto our uh, wavelength uh, from the crystal they'd given us. And um, all of a sudden, uh, you know, we put the first record on and wham, uh, it was coming out of the radio. So uh, it was like m totally mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> that first time you hear you hear your own voice on the radio is always a, a quite a mind blowing experience. Or, or you're responsible for what comes out of the radio. I think is probably the way because obviously we don't hear our own voices. We hear the record that we're playing. Um, so this this will be in North London, I assume, which is where you were living at the time. Right in uh, Golders Green, it was. Oh right, okay. again, nice high up place. That's quite good. Yeah, and um, we put some out and we called up some friends uh, scattered around, you know, in Wembley and different places, and they tuned in and they could hear us. And uh, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, people are actually listening. You know? <laughs> and, and what did you call that first uh, first foray into pirate radio? 
pretty messy. <laughs> now, what was the name of the station, Arnold? <laughs> we, we had well, we hadn't. I mean, we hadn't made the first thing. We hadn't even thought about a, a, a station name. But then, at the end of the broadcast, we sat down and you know, what should we call it? You know, we had all sorts of different names came out, and uh, then we're sitting there. And it was just at that time when the uh, Concorde jet was just about to start uh, service in the air and um suddenly jeffrey said oh let's call it concord faster than the speed of sound oh we're all so imaginative at that age (laughs) i think that's that's brilliant that's great i I think a lot of stations were named after obviously either heavy nights in the pub or because of something happening at the time there was quite a few tell stars around if i remember rightly as well Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that seemed to be quite a popular name there was certainly one in scotland and at least two that i can think of in london so names of stations is always always quite interesting and how people come up with them Uh, i think i probably had the worst name for a station any of all of them but i think everybody always (laughs) thinks their station has the worst name Um, but but i made but i insisted that it was going to be concord without the e it wasn't going to be the the French uh, name they put on the on the plane. Oh right, okay, very <laughs> specific there. <laughs> so so Radio Concord is born, broadcasting from Jeffrey's house. What's the next thing? What 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 do you do? Is this a become a regular thing and it develops into into a more of a regular broadcast? It did. Um, you know, we we started going on at you know weird times of the night and you know just to have fun and. Um, and call our friends, you know, to to see how it was coming in. And then we said, well, um, why don't we, you know, give out his phone number and, and see if anybody else is listening out there. And so we put out his mum's phone number. And um, lo and behold, we started getting calls, <laughs> and, which, again, totally blew our mind. And people were loving it. I remember we did, a, I think, like a four-day uh, thing over an Easter uh, or holiday, it was a holiday, I think it was Easter, and uh, we did a four-day, 24 hours a day, and we invited our friends to come over and, you know, DJ and things like that. And we got people calling up who were listening. At, they were having a party, and they and they had tuned into us, and, and we were the music of the party type thing. So then we, um, uh, what we did is we strapped uh, a microphone, a bit of uh, tape to the uh, telephone, and uh, so we got uh, people could call in and, and, and they would speak on the radio, you know, from wherever they were, you know, the party. So be all the, everyone shouting and screaming, the music going, you know, and uh, it was broadcast out over the air. So that was our first live broadcast from somewhere. <laughs> Again, it seems to me stations always seem to develop once there's a bank holiday or, or a Christmas or Easter. They go, oh, this is quite good. And then realise they've got to now fill the hours with people who are still awake and have record collections as well. But, uh... Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, a lot of our friends were, you know, really into, you know, music and stuff. We all were. So, so you know, people had some good co- uh, collections and, uh, you know, so they came over and uh, became DJs. You know, we just built up. Was it about the music or was it about radio? Hmm. <laughs> Good point. I, I don't know if I can pull that apart. Um, uh, I mean, definitely was the music because we were so fed up with what wasn't on the radio. You know, I loved uh, like singer-songwriters. You know, they were big, big in the early 70s and you'd never hear you know, singer-songwriters, you know, um, on the radio. You know, it just wasn't, they just weren't popular enough, you know, uh, things like that. And just, I liked a lot of eclectic uh, music like the Bonzo Dog Band and things like that. So things that never got played. So I just tried to be really, real eclectic. And, um, you know, I didn't care if people didn't like it. I just, it deserved to be on the radio. Well, it's a case of if I like it, someone's going to like it out there. And they were selling millions of albums as well so someone out there was listening to it all did you think about the legal consequences of what you were doing did that enter into your mind or was it just oh we'll do this and then if they turn up they turn up um i mean when we bought the transmitter and uh, and at the meeting i mean the uh, young lads told us about all the horror stories about uh, being raided and that uh, you had to look out and you know do all those type of things they tried to sort of warn us you know <laughs> Uh, about that side of it but uh, I must admit we were were pretty lax for a long time and uh, and we kept broadcasting uh, from Jeffries and uh, you know it went on pretty good until one fateful Sunday we were broadcasting and things changed a bit in what way tell me the story yeah there was a knock at the door (laughs) 
<laughs> and we looked out the window and there was like, you know, dozens of police standing there with guys in suits, um, you know, and, and uh, those big boots and things. We went, hmm, I think we have a problem. So um, we got, um, you know, kind of suddenly standing there. Well, what do we do? We had sort of like, we'd figured out a plan. Uh, if something happened, then we thought, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we had a plan, you know. So uh, whilst um, Jeffrey's mother was this little old German lady, you know, who could hardly speak English, you know, say, go go and answer the door, but don't let them in, you know. So it was like, um, you know, a whole series of non sequiturs she was doing. You know, she was like one answer behind them all the time, you know. So it was hilarious anyway, what was going at the front door. And so Jeffrey ran upstairs and he lowered the transmitter out of his back window uh, on a bit of string uh, to me who was standing underneath it in the garden and it came down got caught up or got it and I put it tucked it under my arm still warm and uh, ran down to the end of the garden and uh, there were some allotments around the back of his garden so I leapt over the fence with the transmitter and you know ran out into the allotments and I, I found this old uh, garden shed and just uh, lurched into there and just kind of <laughs> breathing you know <laughs> <laughs> sat there for, uh, I don't know, a couple of hours, I think, you know, just sort of um, hoping against hope nobody would get me, you know. And uh, meanwhile, you know, I heard what was happening there. The police had uh, luckily just jumped over the side gate just after I'd made my leaps over the fence so they didn't see me get away. But they came in um, and invaded the place and, you know, the whole thing, uh, you know, obviously they were, they were looking for um, the transmitter, and obviously, with no transmitter, there was um, nothing they could do. And you know, they said, "What about that area you've got up there?" So, oh no, it's just a, a long washing line. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Just a just a long washing line, yeah. sir, <laughs> officer. <laughs> Uh, I, the, the stories I hear of people running away with transmitters or, you know, d disappearing in different directions. They must have seen the backs of lots of long-haired youths back in the 70s and 80s, I think, uh, just <laughs> disappearing off into the distance. Uh, how exactly. frustrating for them. How much fun for us. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yes. So, well, so sorry, that, so that's the first raid of, of um, Concord. So what makes you carry on then? Did you just think, oh, we'll just carry on? And did you move transmission site and so on? Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, some people, you know, if that happens, they'll say, oh, I don't want to do that again, you know, type of thing. That was enough. But for some reason, it inspired us even more. You know, said, hey, you know, this is ridiculous. All we're doing is playing music. How can that be illegal? In America, there's thousands of channels. There's one which is just an all Beatle channel. I mean, what's going on? We can't even play a few bits of music. And it just really inspired us to do to go more. So then we started asking our friends for other locations that we could broadcast from. And so basically, we, we just started uh, hopping to friends' houses and I would hop up trees and, you know, back stairs and everywhere else. I was the designated climber and uh for the for the uh, aerial and uh then we would broadcast and we started doing it on a more of a regular time and um you know just kept on doing it that way and luckily we had a, a big group of friends so um uh, it enabled us to, to um hop to different ones and hopefully confound all the uh the gpo people who were looking for us it's, it's funny that because you know when i got involved i was told within half an hour they know where you're broadcasting from anyway so they could if they fancy it they'll come and get you if they don't they won't bother and I think it seemed like that yeah yeah that's the what i i mean i could be completely wrong and i've not spoken to anybody from what would have been the post office in those days or the dti or, or whatever it was when whoever was listening was broadcasting uh changed names regularly didn't it um changed departments i think we'd, we'd say now it's, it's now part of ofcom i know the regulator the radio regulatory department of ofcom oh, okay. so concord then becomes a regular feature you're hopping from site to site did you ever use field sites or were they always mains driven um houses uh, no we did go into uh, to fields uh had my little um little teeny uh, Vignali Gamin um, Fiat car has two people in, but we used to take it up to, um, you know, like a reservoir, Brent Cross Reservoir, or we'd find it over 
find a place up in Hampstead and uh, you know and throw a uh, you know an antenna up uh, into the uh, tree and uh, we'd have a, a battery you know the 12 volt battery there uh, with an inverter to to power the uh, the transmitter and we had a you know just a little um, the old fashioned um, cassette recorders and we would do our shows uh, that way or just plug in the mic and do something live depending on what the situation was and you know hope the batteries wouldn't run out in, <laughs> during the show i think we've all had situations where our signals got weaker and weaker as the batteries have got worse and worse through the afternoon <laughs> yeah and, and every every station seemed to have a tree climber and or someone who could throw very well um i know jackie uses catapults and stuff like that and, and we did as well everyone always had their antenna the aerial man who was very good at getting the wire as high as possible yeah and that that was me (laughs) (laughs) oh you were the tree climber i heard on jackie it was tony collis was the tree climber there oh okay yeah yeah. (laughs) so you know concord is going quite well is this 235 you were broadcasting on then uh, the first, oh my goodness, my memory's going, but I think that was 235. Uh, if I remember from the book, I think it was 235. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about the book. Arnold's written a great book. It's called Banned by the BBC. You can get it still. It's available on Amazon and, and all good book shops, I suppose you could call it. And it's a fantastic story of his life in pirate radio. So we're talking about these stories now, but if you really want detail of, of, of what he did and how he did it all and how his life has panned out, get the book. It's really good. And there's some great pictures of him. We've even got some hair in some of those pictures, haven't you? Isn't it amazing? And there was actually colour in it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, yes. The world was not black and white all the way through your life, was it? Right. <laughs> True. But no, the book's a really good read. So, so have a look for that. It's called Banned by the BBC. It's by Arnold Levine. And I think what kept us going is, you know, uh, even though it was, what was it, 15 watt or something, it was 12 watt, it was a very small transmitter. But, you know, we'd start getting, um, you know, what, CQ reports from Sweden and uh, in, in France and in Spain. You know, people were, you know, especially at night, it would travel a long way. So we'd get all these uh, reactions from all over Western Europe and, and Ireland and Scotland because we tried to obviously find as high places as possible so we'd have a good, you know, good strong um, broadcast. So I think that was the most thrilling thing that, you know, how far we were going and where people were listening. It, that was just mind-blowing. It's the magic of radio and it's why we all love it, I think. It's that sort of, it's almost like a personal one-to-one thing, even though you're speaking to a huge audience. And they always say when you work in radio, the microphone is the only thing you're talking to. Um, you know, it's one person. I've, I've quoted this before, but Terry Wogan caught in the lift once at Radio 2 and someone said to him, how big's your audience? He went, I've only got one. <laughs> and that was it. And, and and that's the perfect way to look at, look at how you do radio. I think yeah. well, probably the most important thing anybody doing radio needs to know, you're only talking to one person. So Concord carries on. Is this when it starts to become political and you start doing these big broadcasts from central London and stuff? Right. Um, let's see, I went to America. For, yeah, that was my next question. At what point did you go to America? And was Concord still quite a small operation before you went? Yeah, we're still doing um, things. It was, you know, fairly uh, well. We still had quite a few DJs who were doing things, and um, then I left in um, the summer of '72, and it and it went on a bit more, a bit more intermittently with the same transmitter, and uh, and then um, just yeah, just before I came back in '70, early '73, they had a big raid somewhere. And again, we managed to spirit the uh, transmitter away. And then, um, yeah, a few good things happened. Uh, some of the guys went up to um, another station, Radio North London, which was uh, uh, operating, I think, Brent Reservoir. They were they used to go up to and broadcast. And we made some of the guys made friends with with those uh, Simon and uh, Dave, Robbie, and, and stuff, and obviously Keith. Um, from Yorkshire, um, and um, so that sort of we brought them into our, our fold. Yeah, and, and I came back, and then I think about the first broadcast after I came back from America, the transmitter literally exploded, and uh, we realised uh, hmm, perhaps we need an engineer. <laughs> Every station needs an engineer eventually. Exactly. So uh, Simon uh, Newbury uh, was there, you know, at the time he was a young lad of about 16, but he was just one of those wonderful people, you know, there'd be a a heap of metal on the table and you would just 
warm up his soldering iron and within a few minutes it would be glowing and things would be coming out of it. So he knocked up a, a, a really good little transmitter for us and joined us, you know, and then we started um, being more regular broadcasting again. I got out there and, you know, was uh, uh, hunting out new sites because I know that was really the hardest thing for any of the pirates was finding new sites all the time to broadcast from. So I had a knack for it. So I was uh, running around, apart from running up the trees and tall buildings, uh, <laughs> I was running around looking for uh, sites to broadcast from. Uh, one day, um, I was sitting with uh, Mick Lewis, who was uh, who is um, one of our DJs from the beginning, and Jeffrey, and uh, we were just sitting around saying, hmm, how do we get uh, new places to broadcast from? And, and Mick said, you know what, there was a place in London called Bit, uh, which was downing uh, near uh, Westbourne Park Grove near Notting Hill. And it was like a hippie information centre. And so I said, well, I'll call them up and ask them. <laughs> <laughs> nothing so ventured, I, nothing gained, as they say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I called up and you know, I said, well, we're a pirate radio station. We're sort of looking for places to broadcast from. And so the guy sounded puzzled. We said, well, hold on a sec. Let me put you on to this other guy and... I explained it again, and then said, "Hold on, let me let me put you onto this other guy." <laughs> anyway, so they they were intrigued by it, so we went on down there and had a meeting um, with a few uh, the guy who ran a bit. Uh, let's see, oh my god, uh, Kelly, Dave Kelly, and uh, also somebody called uh, Heathcote Williams was there, who was uh, quite famous now. He, you know he has done films and plays and he passed a couple of years ago he was uh, he was squatting there on westbourne park road and uh, and also piers um piers corbin who's the brother of jeremy corbin oh right okay so he was involved as well yeah so piers was was basically the local uh, head of the squatters movement in uh, west london in elgin avenue there so anyway they you know they bombarded us with questions because they thought we you know we could be police or infiltrators or anything you know so we had to convince them that you know we really were <laughs> we said we were and uh, so they seemed convinced and they said well you know we need places to you know broadcast from and so they said hmm well why don't you broadcast from here you know the first time then we can see what it's all about their place was right on the corner of uh, Westbourne Park Road and um, must have been the road going up to the station. Labrook Grove? Yeah, yeah, going up towards Labrook Grove. I know Road. exactly where you mean. <laughs> uh, exactly. And um, and it was the uh, a bank holiday was coming up. So, well, let's just have a big bash there. You know, and this place was very open. It was like people would come in, students and people from all around the world would come in and, you know, crash there for overnight or um, have a cup of tea or look for information about where to go and things. So it was constantly, the door was open, it was constantly things going on. It was a crazy situation. But And, um, of course, the antenna was a big, the aerial thing was a big thing. And um, finally, there was this uh, 20... 22-story uh, building across the road, council house uh, across the road. So, well, that's that's about the only option we had. So, um, so me and uh, Dave from Bit, we uh, went to explore, and uh, you know, somehow we got in the front door. I'm not saying how. Um, <laughs> it may not have been legal, but not the first pirates to manage to wangle their way inside a tower block. <laughs> Exactly. So, uh, so we uh, got all the way up to the top and uh, somehow opened a few hatches and doors and um, got to the roof. And uh, so we had uh, the long uh, reel of wire. So I sort of hung out over the edge and dropped the wire down to uh, the guys waiting out on the plaza in front of the uh, block of flats. And so they grabbed it and then when there was like, you know, it's a busy road going there. So when there was sort of not many cars and buses come along, uh, they I gave them enough slack and they ran it across the road, you know, with everyone trying to stop the traffic, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and they, you know, they, they quickly tied it to some string and hauled it up to the roof and then they could drop it down into where the, tr the transmitter was going down in the uh, their bits front room. 
And uh, we started broadcasting. You know, we ran live. There was a, a band practicing in the basement for a couple of days. So we hooked them up and, you know, we got live music going. We had all different people uh, coming in. We'd interview them um, as they came in the door and doing our usual shows. And uh, it was just a really wild uh, time for four days. And, and what's, what sort of response did you have for that, that broadcast? Can you remember? Oh, my God, because it, it was an unbelievable aerial and antenna you know it went almost straight up you know over 200 feet so we got out just everywhere they people were saying we were booming like uh, the bbc all over london you know we were as loud as the bbc that's, and, that's fantastic and, and did you i assume you had a phone line that you were using that day or those yeah, days we were using the uh, bits phone line they had the, uh, an office phone so we just um you know use that and the people were calling in or we'd lash the mic to it and have people calling in and speaking on the air or you know things like that you know we did poetry and readings and you know live music and it was just really a wonderful free-for-all and somehow in four days we never we never got raided uh, maybe they were all off on on their holidays or something but I was very surprised we weren't, you know, or maybe they were just maybe a bit scared because it was like a bit revolutionary, the hippie, the hippie underground type of thing. Yeah, it's it's funny reasons for stations to be raided and not. I mean, I, I heard a rumor that the, the guys from Radio City, uh, who were a rock and roll station in the late seventies and early eighties, and they never got raided. And the rumor was that they didn't want to raid them because they thought they might all be sort of these uh, biker characters who who may fight back against them and things. And, and the, the criteria for a station to be raided, I've never quite understood. I know they didn't like political stations. And um, th I think there was a certain amount of, of racism involved in some of the stations as well, certainly where DBC yeah. were concerned, which, of course, was also the Labrook Grove area. I right. find it, so, also find it quite interesting that you're talking about all this squatter stuff. Those houses around there now are unaffordable for normal human beings. And, and in those days, it, you know, it was the, it was the counterculture was, was based in that area, Notting Hill and, and that whole area, which is why Concord, of course, was... Uh, gravitating towards that so is that when it started to become quite political and um a lot of what you were doing was was about political movements yeah it really did you know we've been doing a little bit uh, sort of gradually you know, i remember one meet you know meeting we were sitting around and saying you know we can't it can't just be about the music you know that there's got to be a good reason for us doing this you know and so yeah it just sort of slowly began to grow like that and then you know, once we'd had that entree into the whole squatting movement uh, and the underground <laughs> uh, movement uh, of, of that era, uh, that, you know, we'd go to meetings or we'd cover protests or, you know, because I don't think, I mean, there's a lot of homeless now, but back then, you know, there was tens of thousands of people, you know, were squatting homes in yeah. London in that time all over Britain. So, because it was desperately needed, you know, not enough homes had been built you know, rents were high and uh, people took matters into their own, own hands. And, uh, uh, I, I think people nowadays don't realise the legacy of the Second World War, certainly in somewhere like London, where there was a lack of housing. And there were all these great big houses um, in places like Notting Hill um, and Camden, great big four-storey townhouses, basically, and no one living in them. And the councils didn't have the money to refurb them. And people right. were just taking them over. And the private ones, if you kept them empty, you didn't have to pay taxes. So uh, there was an incentive, you know, just to leave him empty. There's a great story about a guy who uh, squatted in a house in Hampstead. And he was there for, I think he was there for 20 years. And after 20 years, if you're a squatting, it becomes yours. You, you get ownership. And he ended up selling it for, well, what, what now would be a paltry sum of £750,000. It's probably worth millions and millions now. But I think he spent all his money on, uh, on a political campaign that failed. I think uh, I can't uh, remember the full story, but uh, I remember hearing something about that. Okay, so is this how you started to get uh, more transmission sites? Then you're using squats around around North London and West London. Yeah, because we used to go to the squatters' meetings, and um, you know, we'd meet people there. And said, "Oh yeah, come over to our squat. You know, we'd love to have you." And and then uh, Piers uh, Corbyn, you know, he knew everybody in London. He was, you know, he was the uh, touch paper for us, and. So he would call up, you know, during the weeks, hey, I've got a great place for you. Or um, Hefcott Williams would call up, oh, I've got a wonderful place for you to broadcast from, you know. So instead of going out to look for it, people were coming to us, uh, you know, to broadcast from. 
That, that must have made life a bit more easy looking for, for uh, various sites. Oh, yeah, it was just wonderful. You know, I mean, they all had their own challenges, of course, but uh, it was uh, always a lot of fun. And, you know, it was great to meet all these people from all around the world. You know, people are spotting in all these places, you know, all different people. So it was great meeting all these people and um, uh, and doing it. And then, um, yeah, it kept on growing. And, you know, some often go to gigs, squatting music gigs, and, and we would uh, record it and then, you know, put it on the air and things like that. And, um, yeah, that, my most favorite bit uh, was when um, Piers uh, called and said, hey, you know, you should go and uh, meet the 101ers. And I said, well, you know, who are they? You know, it turns out they were the squatters band, basically. I've actually seen them uh, a couple of times play. And uh, they were on the ne- Walton Road, I think, right next to La- uh, Elgin uh, Avenue. And they said, you, you guys need to get together. You know, you're the pirate radio and they're the pirate uh, band, you know. So uh, went over there and, uh, of course, uh, that's when I met uh, somebody who became Joe Strummer of The Clash. But then his, um, his name, his squatting name was Woody Wooderson. And he was, you know, when I first saw them uh, play the 101ers and, you know, Joe or Woody was um, the lead singer and, you know, impetus. And I said, oh, my God, this guy has got it i mean the rest of the band was okay but oh my goodness he was so talented and so uh anyway we met him and, and they said yeah come and uh, do a broadcast from our squad and so we did a, a wonderful couple of days or uh, a so broadcast uh, from the 101 squad and and joe would uh, come down and during my shows and he would play live with his uh, guitar and stuff like that and so we became good friends and, um, yeah, you know, things like that would happen, you know, all sorts of art, different artists and things, uh, uh, you know, good musicians and things we would meet up with. And, yeah, and, and then it just kept on going, you know, in that, uh, with all, from all these squats, all, and it became all over London, uh, wasn't just in Elgin Avenue when we uh, met uh, somebody called Sid Rawls. He was called the King of the Hippies. Uh, even in, until recently, it's passed a few years ago, but he used to take everyone down to Stonehenge to do the big hippie uh, Equinox celebration. And he created that whole new travellers uh, thing that uh, yeah. became, of course, a lot of controversy all over. And did, did you broadcast from Stonehenge? We never did, no. No, it went down there for the... We uh, swatted Stonehenge mm-hmm. uh, and uh, basically took it over and... Uh, People like uh, Hawkwind played and, and Joe Strummer came down with the 101 as they played. All sorts of bands played there right next to Stonehenge and um, didn't actually broadcast from there. Oh, right. OK. So Concordy's become quite a counterculture radio station, um, reflecting the counterculture in London. How were, what was the authorities' attitude towards this? Let's say they ramped up their, <laughs> their, uh, their raids on us. To put it uh, lightly. <laughs> and you were broadcasting live at this point, weren't you? It wasn't recorded. It was all live, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, as much as we, we always try to do uh, live shows as much as we could. I mean, you know, sometimes we'd get raided and they would take all of our equipment and uh, and then we would, you know, scramble, get a, get another transmitter together and, um, you know, maybe just have a, a cassette, you know, where we do a show on because we had nothing left. <laughs> to do it with but um you know then people would give us equipment or whatever and we gradually uh redo it again and i mean the worst thing about it was all my wonderful albums were taken by the gpo you know things that we worth a fortune now but (laughs) yeah i know know that feeling i think the interesting thing is that obviously you didn't know at the time and i don't think any station knew at the time but they weren't actually allowed to take that stuff and keep it they had to give it back to you obviously now People know that because of what happened with Radio Jackie and, and a number of other states who found this loophole in the law. And really, they're only allowed to come around and check your equipment. But of course, at that time, people didn't know that was the case with the law. And I think Jackie spent quite a lot of money getting a lawyer to go through the law, you know, with a fine tooth comb and work this one out. Oh. But, you know. Um, but we did, yeah. We did, because um, there was a, in that squatting organization, there was this whole other wonderful organization called Release which was uh, a paralegal group that would help squatters and people get out of jams. So they, uh, they would um, sometimes, you know, issue a letter to them and then we, um, and we'd actually, you know, go, um, go down to their offices and, you know, demand equipment back. 
and um, we actually did get it back once or twice. And then uh, I think once we also, um, people used to scout out the uh, skips in the back of their uh, offices, and that's where they used to dump the equipment uh, that they'd uh, confiscated. So people would go skip diving and, you know, rescue bits if you knew, you know, where it was. I think this stuff used to circulate quite a lot <laughs> from, what, yeah. from what I can gather from various government auction sites and so on and so forth. So Concord is becoming this quite big counterculture station. Then what happens? You know, obviously it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and there's more and more uh, attention. What happens in the end? Right. Uh, well, um, <clears throat> you know, we tried all sorts of things like, um, you know, mainly our transmitters, you know, 15, 25 watts or whatever. But we did, uh, Simon um, decided to build something we called the Artifact, which was uh, a one kilowatt transmitter. And it was like a, you know, three by three by six foot thing. And it would just get into the back of my uh, estate car and uh, we'd shove it in and, um, you know, take it to a, a broadcast. And we believe that was the biggest uh, one ever, you know, ever from, from broadcast for a pirate. A kilowatt. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure quite a few people claimed a kilowatt, but whether that actually was or not, I don't know. So, so what happens with the artifact? Right. Uh, I think um, we did it a few times, but it was just so so big and heavy. It was just really impractical, you know. So uh, we just went back to the small ones and uh, much more easy to do. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, you know, we just got a lot of raids, and so you know, I'd be uh, I'd be ready. You know, I'd be the obviously the designated uh, person to run away with the transmitter. Had some wild escapes. You know, it was almost Dickensian. Like one broadcast in Islington near the old Caledonian Market, they raided, and uh, so I was up. I found a skylight up to the roof, and there was a house a couple of doors down that was empty. So. You know, scrambling over the rooftops with the transmitter and, you know, dropping down into this empty house, which then all of a sudden I found a place in like the just under the attic and was waiting there. And the police came into that building and had to be totally quiet and not breathe whilst they were searching everywhere. And, you know, they, but they didn't find me. Sounds like something from the French Resistance during the war, that kind of thing. <laughs> it literally was. <laughs> um, one of the stories that I love from the book, uh, and I'd love you to talk about this, was, well, there's, there's, it might be the same thing, or was it two different things? I can't remember now. It's the um, Chelsea Harbour, or the Chelsea Boat thing, oh. and also the, the, the Mick Jagger house as well. Um, yes. uh, was, that, was that the same thing? Yeah, that was, um, I had uh, friends, uh, Caroline and Sue, who had an old uh, houseboat just by the Albert Bridge uh, in Chelsea by Cheney Walk. And, um, you know, they said, uh, yeah, come on down, you know, do a broadcast from there. You know, we try anything, you know. So uh, trying to, uh, you know, get up and ant it wasn't exactly an easy place to do it. You know, we thought maybe we'd tie it to the Albert Bridge and bring it over, but with the water there and all sorts of things, it was just, it was just pretty impractical then. then I looked across the street, across Cheney Walk, and there was this, you know, this row of old Georgian houses. And there was one that had these, you know, like a wrought iron uh, up by the windows with a wrought iron trellis going up three stories. And I thought, wow, that would be great to have. So, um, you know, went over there and um, uh, told Caroline, she said, oh, my God, that's Mick Jagger's house. And <laughs> uh, but she said, you know what? There's no girls camping outside it, so that must mean that he's not, you know, he's not there this weekend. So I thought, what the heck, you know? So I kind of walked over there and uh, with a couple of accomplices, and uh, kind of the gate was open. I just sort of walked in and checked the iron trellis, and it was pretty sturdy. So I literally, you know, climbed up three stories uh, on this iron trellis, tied the antenna to uh, to the balustrade of a, a window, uh, wrought iron beat bit and shimmered my way back down and uh, somehow we had to time because Cheney Walk's a very busy road, buses, tracks, everything going on it. So we had to do a, an incredibly well timed, we had to think 21 seconds where the road was clear before, you know, the lights changed and everything. So we had to do a, a wild dash across and hoist up the antenna just before the first bus came, you know, and took it away. And uh, so, yeah, so we we're up and doing it. Then, um, broadcast then uh, all of a sudden uh, a lot of shouting and it turned out to be Mick Jagger's housekeeper Italian housekeeper had discovered what we'd done 
and was causing havoc and, you know, threatening to call the police and all that sort of stuff. So I had to shimmy up all the way again and undo it. And then we were, you know, like 15 minutes before broadcast time. I thought, well, what do we do? <laughs> we don't know. An aerial. So I just got a stick with uh, uh, and tied it to uh, the wire and just threw it up into a, a local, uh, you know, London plane tree on the riverbank there and uh, tied it off and went down, you know, to the houseboat. And we switched it on and started broadcasting. <laughs> Radio Concord is on the air. <laughs> on the air. That is absolutely fantastic. That story's in the book, but, by the way. Yeah, no, it was wonderful because that was the first time we were actually like our pirate heroes. We were on, on the high seas broadcasting. The Concord and their first and possibly last offshore broadcast. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, okay, so Concord carries on. When does, the, when does it morph into dynamite then? When, when does that happen? I- yeah, um, basically, we were getting so many raids, we thought, you know, maybe we need to throw them off and just give ourselves another name. And uh, we had some more younger guys, and they just thought, well, let's, you know, change the image a bit. So we came up with Radio Dynamite. But it was sort of a bad decision, in a way, because <laughs> uh, at the time, the, you know, there's all the IRA and the Bader-Meinhof gang and all those sort of things. And here we come along as Radio Dynamite. And, yeah, you didn't uh, think about that one for very long, did you? <laughs> exactly. Uh, it got even worse, basically. <laughs> so, hmm, let's maybe Concord will be better. <laughs> so Dy- Dynamite was for a short period, and you went back to Concord in the end? And we went back to Concord, yeah. They were down, you know, they'll get us anyway. Let's just be who people know us. <laughs> yeah, I- I've, I've seen I've seen the picture of the car sticker. It probably wasn't the best uh, choice in the early 70s. <laughs> Yeah, exploding uh, dynamite, exactly. Excellent. So how, <laughs> Just didn't think about it at the time. <laughs> so uh, how long did Concord go on for then? Um, were you continuing on for quite a while? Yeah, we went, uh, well, I went to uh, 1977. Then I went back to America for good. But uh, Mick uh, and Simon and the other guys uh, continued on a little bit more sporadically. And then... Uh, uh, they joined up with um, Radio Celebration. And, that, that, yeah, they went on for a bit, but uh, they got raided and, and the, the guy from Celebration decided to do lots of lawsuits and things and uh, against the uh, GPO and stuff. And it sort of gradually uh, tailed, out, but, uh, tailed off, basically, and, and, and ended, I think, about a year into 78, I think. So you're in America now, so... so- Why'd you go over there, and what happens when you go over there? Oh, um, well, uh, I'd uh, met an American woman in when uh, who was in the squatting movement. Always seems to be a woman involved in these things. <laughs> yeah, sure, Sheila Femme, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, uh, she'd been away for five years from America, and so, well, let's just, um, and yeah, the economy was bad in England in those days, um, very bad, and so we said, well, let's, let's go, you know, to California, and so. Uh, you know, we uh, decided to do that and, you know, we enjoyed it and, you know, decided to stay, basically. You got involved in radio again, didn't you? Uh, quite quickly or was it? did it take a little while? No, it, it took a while. Um, yeah, 30 years. <laughs> but I did do some, I actually, when went to San Francisco, there was um, a group called the Haight-Ashbury Radio Collective and they did a show on a, a, the KPFA, which is a, a left-wing radio station in Berkeley. And so they d- used to do a weekly show on that, so I joined them uh, for a bit. And then sort of drifted away, you know, you start having family and all that sort of stuff. And used to do some guest things on, on other, other stations, uh, various interviews and things. But, you know, didn't take it too seriously, but um, just... Obviously, life gets in the way. And then uh, I'd moved out of uh, San, Fran- uh, San Francisco to uh, Sonoma County, about an hour north of uh, San Francisco. And uh, just uh, one day I was uh, looking at the no- local news and its newspaper, and it said a, a new community radio um, was starting in the area. And said, oh, oh, that might be fun, you know, getting on the uh, ground floor. It was... And, um, so went to the meeting and, uh, you know, there was loads of really cool people there. And so, oh, this is for me. <laughs> and uh, so became a, a DJ on it. And um, that was really wonderful. And after three years, the guy originally started it left. And so I 
I actually became the uh, manager for about three years. And then it, it's too intense for one person. So we made it a, a, um, a group, uh, yeah. basically a steering committee uh, to run it. And so I've been doing it 15 years now. And, um, you know, a great group of people. And we have um, just a wonderful uh, collection of local uh, broadcasters. And we put on selected shows from around uh, the globe as well people either do special shows for us or you know we grab it from them and uh, yeah and so um it's just been wonderful you know it, and, and the beauty of it you know when we first started it was it was wonderful you know to do my show and i didn't have to think about you know uh, an axe trying to knock the uh, break into the door and, and police dogs smiling at me you know it was it was a wonderful release <laughs> to do it that i think the first time we ever do radio in a legitimate kind of way you always think ah oh, there's that relief as you say that we're not going to have someone come and knocking at the door asking what we're up to or knowing what we're up to basically so exactly so just just going back quickly to your pirate days did you ever actually get caught and fined was that ever something that happened to you Oh, yeah, uh, uh, a number of times. Um, I mean, got caught a lot of times, but they often didn't take you to court. They were just happy to take you equipment, you know, rather than um, all the fuss and bother of taking you to court. Like one um, uh, where they did was uh, because I'd done it at my parents' house. They'd gone away for the weekend. You know, we thought, oh, that'd be a fun place to do it. That was up in uh, Parliament Hill Fields by Hampstead Heath. And uh, we had a a great... um, uh, aerials uh, which I slung up on the uh, on uh, to the back of the convent school, the girls' convent school at the back of the house. It was blasting away um, all over London, and then uh, I think we failed in our lookout thing, and nobody was looking. And all of a sudden, there was a knock at the door, and um, a lot of guys in blue were standing there. <laughs> <laughs> and because you know, it was like I couldn't like you know, it wasn't a squat where you could just you know, not uh, you know, could you have to admit you know that this was there? So um, so they dinged me for that. But a lot of the other guys just gave false names, so they didn't you know they never never got uh, touched by uh, it. But. Quite difficult to give a false address if it's actually your house, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we all did broadcast from our parents' homes when they weren't around at, at one time or another. I certainly did. I know that, and I know quite a few people who did. No, and you know, and often uh, they would put me in holding cells overnight uh, sometimes um, and need to have the old good cop, bad cop come in and try and uh, get something from us, you know. We knew they couldn't do any, you know, really do anything too bad to us, you know, so uh, it was more of a game of cat and mouse, you know. I do, I do wonder sometimes how interested the police were. I know, I know the, uh, in your case, the post office were, obviously that was part of what they were doing, but I'm not sure the police were that interested in what pirate radio people were doing. Oh, uh, no, they were They were usually really pissed off when they realised there was, like, nothing to do. You know, they'd come with, you know, dozens of police cars and, you know, dogs and everything. It was like, what? You know, it's just a bunch of guys sitting around in the house. You know? <laughs> I wonder whether the post office talked the police up and saying, oh, these are master criminals and we weren't, we were just blokes playing records on the radio. Well, exactly. There was one, uh, yeah, one, the biggest bus we had, I suppose, was um, was something like that. Where, uh, when, that's right, Hefka Williams, the uh, the poet and writer, uh, he, he uh, just um, penned a... a an essay which he read out aloud on on the radio and it was sort of all sorts of things you know and it was about the queen and you know all sorts of things you know not salubrious things about the queen and what was happening in this story and and it turned out just at that time the gpo were in the uh notting hill gate police station you know they and they turned the radio on so that they could hear and it was just at the time that we uh Hithka was slamming the queen and it really got them pissed off <laughs> <laughs> so they literally threw everything at it. You know, they cordoned off the street and, you know, literally dozens and dozens of police, police dogs, battering rams. I mean, it was it was just incredible. <laughs> <laughs> like I say, master criminals or not, as the case may be. <laughs> okay, so we're reaching the end of the, the, the hour that we put aside. What I'd like to ask you, and I always ask the same sort of questions at the end of these, these things, um, what's your proudest moment of your pirate radio time well um certainly on the music side of things i was the first person to play the clash anywhere in the world i played the clash a lot on my radio station because we were very much a punk station so uh, thank you for that 
And uh, but my worst one were uh, so from that height, so almost about the same time, is uh, I turned Bruce Springsteen down for a, a, a benefit gig. That's that's quite impressive, I would say. <laughs> and again, in all your pirate radio time, who's the person you most admire from that period? Mm, uh, from all the various people we um, came across. Yeah, came across either pirates or, or, or guests or people involved in the station. Well, it was, I mean, you know, just the other pirates like Jackie, who just was doing it for so many years, they kept on doing it, whatever happened, they just kept on, kept on doing it. I had great admiration for all those guys uh, just doing it, you know, every day. You know, and then, you know, certainly in the squatting movement, uh, Piers Corbin, you know, he was such um, an amazing force, you know, trying to help so many people, trying to, you know, give them respect and dignity was, you know, really big, I think. I think, oh, so many, uh, you know, it's, yeah, you know, Sid rules certainly because he was so crazy. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think that, I think you need to have a, an element of crazy to do pirate radio anyway, to be brutally honest and to be involved. It's in the, you're not the first person to mention Radio Jackie um, and yeah. the people at Jackie. That it, It's sort of the one we all, uh, certainly I did, I, I'm not going to say everybody, but we looked up to and go, yeah, we wish we had the determination that, that they had and they did have a lot of determination. Uh, episode two, by the way, which you can listen back to if you want to, is my interview with Nick Catford from Radio Jackie. Um, oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, and that that he tells the story and it's a brilliant story. And what a lot of people don't realise with Jackie is Nick Catford's parents had a lot to do with keeping that station on the air, which which is a great thing. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, well, it... it it's if you read the book as well there's a book about radio jackie and they talk a lot about nick's parents and how they sort of supported you know when they got raided and and nick's mum would sit there and go right what are we doing next week (laughs) which which is just tremendous yeah and of course all the people who gave us their places to broadcast from i mean you know and even when it was funny even when people were raided they didn't seem to mind they just enjoyed it you know they felt like they were doing something I think it was part of that counterculture thing, almost a medal of honour, I think, probably, to uh, to host the station and then get raided at some point. Exactly. <laughs> um, quickly about the book, why did you write the book? And do you want to tell people about it? Yeah, uh, really, uh, you know, because t- so many crazy, you know, we've gone into some of the things, but there was just so many more I even had to edit out of the book. And um, it was just an amazing time. We... Uh, I say it was just opened my eyes, you know, um, you know, done hippie stuff in the 60s, but this was like something so different and it, you know, gave such a different outlook to the world uh, and it really helped me grow as a person, I think, uh, uh, through this process. Like I say, the book is fantastic. It's got loads of stories. As I say, we've, we've really only scratched the surface here. There are loads and loads more stories uh, about your pirate radio world and other things that you've done as well. Right. It's available from Amazon. It's um, I've got the book here in front of me right now. Banned by the BBC, How I Became a Radio Pirate by Arnold M.D. Levine. Not Arnold Levine, M.D. <laughs> no, uh, it's, uh, yeah, just by coincidence, it's <laughs> my initials are that. And, uh, and, yeah, you can get it on, if you don't like Amazon, you can go to Ingram Spark uh, and, uh, and directly, or you can go to any independent bookstore and they, they can get it through. They, they will order, any, order it anyway, yeah. Okay, yes. They can get it. Absolutely fantastic. Well, Arnold, I'm, I really wanted to get you on the podcast um, uh, because I'd read the book and, and I think you're one of the pioneers from those early days as well. Um, you know, just the post radio free London days in, in, into the early seventies. Um, thank right. you ever so much for, for spending this time with us. Hopefully we may be able to talk again at some point in the future and you can tell me some of the stories you edited out of the book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, and, uh, all of the maps in the UK is off back to America soon, I think, aren't you? Yeah, I'll be back next month. Back to America next month, yeah. Excellent. Okay, I'm back on the radio next month. Oh, yes, indeed. I've been trying to do my shows, record, pre-record them um, and things, but uh, I actually uh, recorded um, a Sparks concert at the Royal Albert Hall, uh, you know, with my phone, and, and I, I set that back for, for my show last week. Excellent. Okay. Um, thank you ever so much for spending some time with us. We really, really appreciate it. And, oh, uh, my, my pleasure, Mark. And thank you so much for letting me uh, blabber on. <laughs> That's fine. If you didn't blabber on, it'd be a very boring podcast. Right. <laughs> thank, thanks very much, Arnold. Thanks, Mark. That was lovely. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast and thanks to Arnold for his time. If you've got any comments or would like to be a guest on a future episode, then just email us at piratepod7080 at gmail.com. Or leave a comment on the Landbase Pirate Radio of the 1970s and 80s Facebook group. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast, then please buy me a coffee. You just have to go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash markwakeleyw and buy me a coffee or two. Thanks. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another Pirates of the Airways podcast. So until then, keep a good lookout during those tape changes. Radio Nova, broadcasting on 1404 kilohertz of the medium wave band, 212 metres. Unfortunately, we've had to suspend your regular broadcasting. This is due to the post office requiring to test and inspect our equipment. We'll return you to normal broadcasting just as soon as we can. This is a 1386 audio production.